Hi everyone and welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us. This is a brand new podcast called No Diving. I am, my name is Tom White and I'm here with David Campbell. And in No Diving, we are going to talk about how you can avoid the shallow end of your faith and go deeper into the Bible. Many of you will already know David, uh, and that's probably why you're here. And he has a brand new book coming out. So we are going to take um, 10 episodes to look at the 10 chapters of his book, where we are going to talk about various topics such as faith, worship, healing, money, prophecy. And we're going to dig deep into these into these topics, see what the Bible has to say, and also look at maybe some of the misconceptions that have uh, grown around them. So, uh, David, most people, I'm sure, listening to this will, will know a bit about you, who you are, but why don't you tell us a little bit about your background to start us off? Yeah, uh, I started off life being trained as a biblical scholar uh, at various universities and seminaries. I then spent the majority of my life since then church planting and uh, teaching on the side. And uh, we felt led, my wife and I, my wife Elaine and I felt led uh, several years ago to step down from the church side of things so we could devote ourselves to uh, teaching and leadership development around the world, uh, which we've been doing uh, since. And writing is part of that. And uh, part of that is the production of this latest book that I've written called No Diving. And you planted a church as a student in Durham in the UK which not many students can say, say they did. You've planted churches in Canada as well, and now you teach on TheosU, the online theology platform. You're a bit of a, bit of a legend on TheosU, I gather. And so uh, how, how are you finding this new stage of life, embracing all this technology? Yeah, well, it's challenging, but I have guys like you that are half my age to teach me what to do and bail me out when I get into trouble. Half your age, is it? <laughs> So we're really looking forward to getting stuck into this book. We first met actually when I was a fresh-faced first-year student at Newcastle University here in the UK and you came, I expect you came and spoke at the church I was at, that's probably when we first met and we we struck up a friendship all those years ago, 15 years ago almost, it'll be 15 years in September and uh, we haven't grown sick of each other yet. Uh, or maybe we have slightly, but we're still we're still hanging out online at least during coronavirus. So this is the first episode, and we thought we'd start off nice and light, not get too heavy, and that's why we've picked the topic of eschatology and revelation. So um, you teach a lot about this on Theos. You you do a lot of Instagram uh, lives with with Nathan Finocchio. So a lot of people know you for this subject. So we thought we'd start off with this. You have written a number of books on Revelation, which obviously deal with a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about. So very well placed to talk about this. So I'm going to kick us off and we'll see where we go. So I want to start with this. I want to start with a fundamental point that I think lots of people get wrong. And it's this, that the last days started with the ministry of Jesus and then Pentecost. It's not a set of events that we're waiting for. Do, would, you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I was just talking with a young church planter in Chicago on this very topic. Uh, and we have a very warped idea. Uh, well, when I say we, it's more so on the North American side of the uh, world than uh, elsewhere. But 
we had this uh, idea that the last days uh, are the last days immediately prior to the return of Christ, which has a certain logic to it because they are the last days of history. But theologically, in the way the New Testament looks at it, uh, is that the last days began with the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. And uh, it's a pretty consistent theme, uh, whether you look at uh, the book of Acts, where Peter gets up and preaches that this is the last days in Acts chapter 2, uh, whether you look at Hebrews or James or 1 John, uh, they all use the phrase the last days with clear reference to uh, what they were living in, which was 2,000 years ago. And so uh, uh, the uh, significance of that is that uh, all the events that are being talked about in the visionary portion of the book of Revelation, which runs from um, chapters 4 through to the end, uh, and um, the first two of those chapters, chapters 4 and 5, are a vision where John is transported into heaven. And then following that, uh, from uh, chapter 6 through to chapter 20, uh, we have uh, a series of uh, events, cascading events occurring, uh, and uh, those events occur throughout the period of the last days, which is actually what we could call the age of the church from Pentecost until the Lord's return. And so eschatology, which means the study of the last things, is about uh, the time period that begins with the death and resurrection ascension of Christ, the outpouring of the spirit of Pentecost, and ends with the return of the Lord. So this is all the last days that we're living in. And uh, most of the book of Revelation pertains to that period of time. A very small part of it pertains to events uh, which are at the end of the last days, which are immediately prior to the return of Christ. So when we look at uh, eschatology, and Jesus had the same attitude uh, that we're to... Uh, live in these days uh, as if the Lord could return at any moment. Treat the day that you live in as important in the sight of God. Jesus may come back at any time. Um, that's part of the uh, significance of the fact that the last days pertains to the church age. And uh, that means that we're to be active in spreading the work of the kingdom in the now of our life. It's not just something, uh, the kingdom is not just something that's going to happen in a literal earthly sense uh, at some date after a supposed rapture. The kingdom is here now. It entered into history and time and space in the ministry of Jesus Christ. We're living in the days of the kingdom, and these are the days in which God is at work and is doing all these things, sending these plagues and judgments uh, upon the earth to you know, um, shake people up from time to time, to shake them out of their complacency, to a, a address a shallow church. Uh, these are things that are happening now, and we need to pay attention to them. Uh, otherwise, we've missed the message of the book of Revelation. So we, we need to get our eyes off of that idea that something happening in the Middle East is going to come down the pike 
And uh, th that's the only sort of thing that really matters. Everything else is just a prelude to it. No, we're, we're living in the last days. Everything that's happening now is significant. And uh, we need to understand and see the book of Revelation within that perspective. To, I mean, Jesus said himself to his disciples, there would be earthquakes and rumors of wars. And that was 2000 years ago. So it, it just feels like any attempt to interpret today's news into those words just seem futile because it's you know if it's been such a long period of time you think by now people would have realized that actually there's no there's no fruit in doing that yeah uh, exactly and i mean it's it's pretty clear if you look at matthew 24 luke 21 and mark 13 which uh, are the passages in which jesus discusses these things it's pretty clear that he's talking about two different things one of which is the fall of Jerusalem and its destruction by the Romans, which the, the generation Jesus was speaking to would live to see it all. He said that, and that did happen within a generation. Uh, but the other set of events he's talking to is everything that is going to happen following that period of time. Um, and that's where he talks about earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars. And he says, don't get uh, bent out of shape and worrying that the end is about to happen because it, it isn't yet. Oh, you have to go through this indefinitely protracted period, which is characterized by all these things, which the book of Revelation recasts as a replay of the 10 plagues of Exodus. And those kind of things are, are including the arrival of false messiahs and uh, challenges to the gospel message, that those things are going to characterize this entire age. And Jesus didn't put a time on it. All he said was that it would end, and it would end when he returns. But concerning that, he said, no one knows the time, not, the, uh, not, um, not even the Son, but only the Father. And so uh, there's no place for speculating as to when that time might be. In fact, he said, it, the Son of Man will return at an hour when you least expect him to return. So all this sort of reading of the tea leaves by, um, so to speak, uh, that Christians carry out um, by uh, trying to parse or interpret or understand the latest news reports out of the Middle East are abs an absolute waste of time. Uh, it's not what Jesus was talking about. And, and, and more than that, they're a massive distraction from the work of the kingdom. And I mean, amazingly, it's a huge industry. You know, it's it's a massive industry. It's made a lot of people a lot of money through books and all sorts. People get very preoccupied with it, but also it's it's a it's a fairly recent phenomenon, isn't it? Really, when you look at the the brushstroke of time, it's only in the last two hundred years or so that this fixation on revelation being interpreted into our events has come about, isn't it? That's correct. Um, it it, it uh, in talking to. Uh, this American pastor today, uh, he was bemoaning the state of uh, the American church in terms of eschatology, which is a correct observation. But I said, well, at least you have the consolation that it isn't an American invention. It all came from Britain. Uh, and uh, that was a man called John Nelson Darby, who was a very gifted Bible teacher, but he was fixated with Israel and the idea that Israel would be restored as a nation. Uh, and uh, in the process of which Darby, and we're talking about the year 1830, uh, 
1828 to 1830, Darby developed this notion that God had two covenant peoples, one of which was the Jews and one of which was uh, the church, and that you absolutely couldn't mix the two, that God only dealt with one covenant people at a time, and he dealt with them in two different, completely different ways. And so uh, Darby's idea was, and this was a novelty um, in the history of the, of the Christian church. So prior to this time, um, you know, he dreamed up something entirely new, right? Uh, and, I, um, and so Darby's idea was that um, God sent Jesus uh, into the world to establish a literal earthly kingdom at Jerusalem of the Jews, and that uh, surprise, shock took, uh, uh, a surprise took place, and God was shocked, so to speak, um, when Jesus actually was rejected. That wasn't the plan. Uh, the plan was that they would receive him as the king of the Jews and, and set up this um, Davidic kingdom. Uh, now, uh, that was actually what the Jewish people were expecting the Messiah would do, and Jesus spent most of his ministry trying to tell them that wasn't what he came to do. My kingdom is not of this world and all that sort of thing, but Darby didn't get that. So he was fixated on this idea, and then he, uh, so what happens when the plan fails? God comes up with plan B, and plan B is the church. So the church was never God's intention, but it was plan B. And so dispensationalists, this was the theology that he created, dispensationalism, dispensation meaning different periods of time, God did different things. And so Darby created this theology in which the church age was a parenthesis or brackets. It was a kind of a footnote, not the main event. And so uh, Jesus went to the cross. Instead of accomplishing his mission, he failed in his mission. And so God reverts to plan B, which is the church. But now God has a problem because his original plan, which was plan A, the one that he preferred, um, he still has to institute God being God, but he can't deal with two covenant peoples at the same time. So therefore, he has to find some way of getting rid of the church so he can go back to plan A. And it was at the moment when he was pondering this dilemma and trying to figure out uh, how it could be solved that a young lady in Scotland called Margaret MacDonald uh, had this charismatic vision in which she saw Jesus returning secretly. Now, again, no one ever in 1800 years had come up with the idea that there was more than one return of Christ. Jesus taught very clearly that his return will be visible as the lightning is from the east and the west and so on. But Margaret MacDonald had a vision in which Jesus returned secretly. Darby heard about the vision, and he attached to it the idea that the purpose of this secret return of Christ was to take the church out. And hey, presto, Darby's problem was solved. The church would be taken out by a secret return of Christ, which he called the rapture, and then God could revert to his original plan of um, dealing with Israel. And so there would be a seven-year tribulation, which is not anywhere in the Bible. It's a twisting of a text of in Daniel chapter 9 and four verses in Daniel chapter 9, 
um, into something that Daniel chapter 9 doesn't mean, but he came up with this idea of a seven-year tribulation at the end of which Christ would make a second visible return. Uh, then the Jewish people that were saved during the period of tribulation uh, Christ would establish an earthly kingdom. The temple would re be rebuilt. The law would be reinstituted. Um, and, of course, there's a big problem for dispensationalists as to how to justify the fact when Hebrews said he does away with the first to establish the second and the law is passed, how people could again relate to God for salvation through the law, particularly when Jesus Christ himself is presiding over this kingdom. And so there's all sorts of inconsistencies in it, including the fact that the church exists in a new Jerusalem, which hovers above the literal earth and immortal uh, Christians from the new Jerusalem go down and mingle with the mortals every so often have coffee or whatever. And every time, you know, a, a person in the millennium, they'll live long lives, but, they will die. Uh, when they die, um, there is a further resurrection. So there's thousands of resurrections. And so uh, there's, pe people don't realize that when they say, well, I believe in the rapture, that they're buying into this whole fairy tale uh, of um, a, 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 a theological viewpoint that was imposed on the Bible. And I, I don't, you know, I, I'm always careful when I make this comment, but at the same time Darby was speculating on this, uh, so was uh, uh, a man called Russell uh, who got some of the same ideas and he founded a group that today we call the Jehovah's Witnesses. So was a man called Miller who founded the group that today we call the Seventh-day Adventists. And uh, even uh, the Mormons, uh, which was, again, a few years later, about the same period of time, um, they all have certain points in common. The difference with the dis and the points in common generally relate to secret returns of Christ and uh, an earthly millennium. Uh, and so, um, so dispensationalists uh, never fell into the other errors of Jehovah's Witnesses who denied the Trinity and all sorts of other things. Seventh Day Adventists um, believe that when Christ didn't return. Uh, visibly, they believe that he simply moved from one um, compartment of the uh, heavenly holy of holies into another, and there began a judgment which has been going on for 200 years where everybody's sins are judged. And so you get all this kind of thing, but it comes out of the same stable. And so uh, uh, we need to go back and look at it really carefully. Uh, because it twists and distorts the whole focus of our faith. Your eschatology affects everything you believe as a Christian, whether you realize it or not. And what I find is, and then, I mean, I'm sure we'll get onto this as well and more, but, you know, the, the political state of Israel and, and Zionism, for me, it just seems to totally... Uh, take away from what Jesus did on the cross. You know, there, there's neither slave nor, nor free nor Greek nor Jew. You know, and but now we have, as you say, these two covenants that they're trying to wrestle with. And I really struggle to understand how it took such a strong foothold all those years ago, and now is just like you say, so mainstream across uh, the USA and to a less extent over here, when there seems to be so many holes in 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 what in what they believe. Yeah, I think I think the answer is is partly 
why did dispensationalism become popular at the same time as Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, the Mormons? Because there was just, a, a, for whatever historical reason, there was a kind of a frenzy of end-time speculation in the 1830s and 40s. And, uh, and then dispensationalism, uh, you know, sort of puttered along uh, until uh, a man called um, Schofield uh, pu uh, published a, a, a study uh, Bible around 1900 um, where the, the, you know, the teaching notes at the bottom of every page were full-blooded dispensationalism. And, uh, and that popularized it. Uh, and uh, it took over Moody Bible Institute and, you know, the influence began to spread uh, for historical reasons. And so uh, the other thing historically was that in the United States at the beginning in the early years of the 20th century, uh, there was a great dispute between uh, people who held to historic Christian faith and a high view of the Bible and liberal theology, which was, you know, becoming increasingly predominant. And the dispensationalists held out for a very high view of the Bible, and they claimed that their interpretation of the Bible was literal, whereas the liberal side was obviously not literal. They didn't believe the Bible is literally true. And so uh, that became a great point of um, advertising for the dispensationalists. They advertised, promoted themselves as the only people left who literally believe the Bible, who believe the Bible is literally true. And of course, dispensationalism, uh, I mean, sometimes, uh, when you read passages in the Bible, for instance, poetic passages in uh, the Old Testament of the Song of Solomon, or if you read the parables of Jesus, you realize that they're not meant to be taken as literally. If you take them as literally true, you're actually distorting the true meaning of them. Well, when Jesus said, there's, you know, uh, the, the seed of a mustard seed, the smallest seed, well we, well, we know now that that isn't the smallest seed, but it, it was contextual for, for the people that were listening to. Yeah, exactly. And there's, there's tons of illustrations for that sort of thing. And so, um, you know, the fact that the fact that people who were non-dispensationalists who held the kind of eschatology that Christians had held for 2000 years also held to a very high view of the Bible but they just believe that revelation has to be understood from a symbolic perspective. And uh, all that means is that the, um, that the pictures that you get, and John obviously is recording visions that he's seeing, heavenly visions. And in the visions, he sees all sorts of things that uh, appear in the Old Testament. For instance, locusts. Now, Dispensationalism says, well, that may, means that there must be a uh, locust infestation as a sign of the return of the Lord. But if you look at the book of Joel, locusts refer to enemy forces, forces opposing God's people. And so uh, there, it's a symbolic reference, right? Uh, the plagues, uh, the uh, trumpets and the uh, bowl judgments of Revelation are simply borrowed from the plagues of Exodus, and they all have symbolic meaning. They have real meaning. For instance, darkness refers to 
the rule of Satan and confusion. So it doesn't have to be a literal darkness. It's actually talking primarily about a spiritual darkness. So what we do, when, when you look at Revelation, in, in 404 verses, there are over 500 allusions to the Old Testament. That's, that's more allusions to the Old Testament than in every other book in the New Testament put together. So what that says is that you have to go back to the Old Testament. You have to look at what the uh, picture means in the Old Testament that is presented in Revelation and interpret it by the meaning of the Old Testament uh, that the Old Testament puts upon it. So when the woman uh, in, in Revelation chapter 12 has 12 stars, that's Jacob's dream uh, concerning, you know, his parents, his mother, his father, and the 12 brothers. And then the woman gets picked up by an eagle. Well, that's Isaiah, where Isaiah talks about, um, you shall run and not be weary, you shall walk and not faint, and you'll, you'll be lifted up in eagle's wings. And this sort of thing, it talks about the care of God in that way. It doesn't mean a literal woman is going to be picked up by the scruff of her neck and carried by an eagle into some desert place. It's talking about the church of Jesus Christ, the faithful community of the saints, as, as represented in Joseph's vision, being transported and into a place of spiritual safety, and in that place being kept safe. And so... Um, I've digressed a long way, but one of the reasons dispensationalism became popular was that it became the standard bearer for a high view of the Bible. And so people automatically thought, well, if we don't believe it, our churches are going to hell by throwing the Bible out the window. And so they got a great big sort of head start on that. And then in modern, sort of more modern times, they struck it uh, rich with the left behind series of films and so on, which are just total fiction. I mean, they're, they don't even have the pretense of being based on, you know, scriptures in, in the book of Revelation. They're just fictional accounts, but they caught people's fancy enough to sell 62 million books. And that isn't even before you get into the videos and the DVDs as the technology was then. And so uh, it, it catches, and it catches people, dispensationalism has a certain fascination because Christians like to pick up the newspaper or look at their website online and say, hey, I know what's happening. I've got this secret knowledge. This is all, you know, if there's a Gulf War, well, that's obviously, oh, here's Saddam. He must be the Antichrist. Oh, he's rebuilding Babylon. Oh, the, and I'm the one. We know what's happening here. You know, we've got the key to all this. People are suckers for this type of thing. And then when it doesn't pan out, instead of sort of going back to the drawing board and saying, well, maybe I should stop interpreting the Bible by the latest news reports in the Middle East, they don't. They're just stupid. They sit around and wait for the next um, false prediction to, to come out. And it's, it becomes a kind of an addiction until people throw up their hands, they walk away, as many younger Christians are doing today. By younger, I mean anything under about the age of 40. And they're saying, I don't want to know about it. Uh, it's too confusing. I'm just going to leave it. And then, of course, you get robbed from all that Jesus taught about the end times and all that John sees in his visions, which are really important to teach us how to live in this present day and age. And it's a tragedy. And you referred to the 500 references to the Old Testament. And so... Would you say understanding the book of Revelation is as much about looking back 
as it is looking forward because today we're told it's all about what's to come but as you say it's so much of understanding it is about looking back into the old testament and what was written then well i think in one sense yes to interpret uh the book of revelation you have to read it through the lens of the old testament now that is why should we be surprised at that you have to look at what jesus said through the old testament when he talks about a fig tree um, it's not just because the fig tree was in front of him. It's because the fig tree sim- in the Old Testament symbolizes um, Israel, particularly standing under the judgment of God. So when he heads down the road and curses the fig tree on his way to clean the temple out, he's, he's using a symbol, the fig tree, to refer to Israel. And so, uh, and, and we could go on like that. But um, basically, we use the Old Testament as the grid uh, to interpret what John means. And uh, scripture interprets itself. We interpret the scripture by the scriptures, not by the, a news report that comes out of the Middle East. Um, and, but we use it to interpret, I would say, the present. You know, primarily, we are responsible for how we live our lives for God in the now of today. And so what we are responsible to do is whether it's Revelation or any other book of the Bible, we're responsible and accountable to God for taking and understanding that and applying it to the life we're living today. You know, I mean, never mind what is going to happen in the future. Jesus says, keep your eyes on today, sufficient for the day or the evils of it. Let tomorrow worry about itself. Instead of spending uh, inordinate amounts of time and money speculating about what's coming tomorrow in direct disobedience to what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, uh, we are instead of doing, instead what we are to do is to take what the Bible says, take what the book of Revelation says, and say, well, how is this applicable to my life today? And the Revelation has a couple very simple messages, one of which is, if you're a Christian, you will suffer for your faith. And if you're a Christian, under, uh, you know, what it, whether the suffering be uh, minor irritation or whether it be threat of loss of life, you, you will be tempted to compromise. And don't compromise because your reward that is coming to you at the Lord's return is far greater than anything you get in this life. And if you compromise, you risk losing what is coming to you then. So, that's one of the ma- that's the major pastoral message of the book of revelation and it's addressed to you and i today we as christians are living in a society where we're increasingly penalized for being who we are and believing what we are cancel culture you know the first thing they'd like to cancel is jesus christ and so we will suffer on account of that so how are we to respond well revelation tells us and gives us the guidelines for doing that but if, we're, if all we can see is what's happening in the Middle East and what's going to happen, you know, uh, and, 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 and this, the state of Israel, it's all about the state of Israel, then we will co- totally and completely miss everything that God is speaking to us through the book of Revelation and, and for which we are accountable before God because he'll want to know when we meet him face to face. Did you ever read the book of Revelation? Did you try to understand it? Did you listen to the message that I was trying to get through your thick head or not? Just to get 
specific. You talked about earlier how the rapture is, is is not a biblical concept, and some people get quite wrapped up on a passage in 2 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Now, I know uh, you address that a lot in Theos U, so just explain a bit about how people like to interpret that and how maybe they get that wrong. Yeah, so in 1 Thessalonians 4, but in 1 Thessalonians 4, you have two... Uh, you have um, two statements made uh, concerning the return of Christ, one of which, uh, and it talks about Christ returning, Christ coming, and our being caught up to meet him. Now, uh, the two Greek words uh, are parousia and apentasis. <clears throat> parousia means uh, a person's presence. Apentasis means a meeting. And these are used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to describe the return of Christ. Both words uh, have a very specific meaning in Greek. And uh, they both refer to the visitation of an emperor. So the emperor would appear and the citizens of the city would go out to have a meeting with the emperor. Uh, But the critical thing about it is the purpose of uh, the appearing of the emperor and of the uh, citizens going out to meet him, we will meet him in the air, right, is the emperor is coming toward uh, the city, and before he gets there, the citizens go out and they have a meeting at his appearance, and what happens afterward is the critical point. They escort him back into the city to honor him and declare his rulership over the city. So the Apostle Paul is saying that Christ is returning to a renewed heavens and earth. He's not returning to take anyone out. He's returning to come in and be acclaimed as Lord. And so those who are, those of us who are his people will not leave or be, be taken out or removed. We actually will accompany him back to the city and acclaim him as Lord of the renewed heavens and earth. So it teaches the opposite of the rapture. It's the same thing in Matthew 24, where Jesus says, one will be taken, as it was in the days of Noah, one will be taken and the other left. Well, left behind. Oh my goodness. Someone will be taken. That's the rapture. No, it's the opposite. As it was in the days of Noah, one will be taken and one will be left. Well, who was taken in the days of Noah and who was left? Well, who was left was Noah and his family, the righteous who was taken was the all of the lost. And so, again, the rapture theology twists and makes the scripture mean the total opposite to what it's actually saying in in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in Matthew 24. And I'm not aware of any other scripture in the whole Bible that could remotely be connected to or used to justify um, the idea that God comes to take people out rather than Jesus returns to for himself to come in to this new and recreated heavens and earth. We've touched on it as well so far about the state of Israel. And so, you know, we talk about this feverish uh, period of time a couple of hundred years ago when a lot of this, um, these, these patterns of thought were developing, then the Schofield Bible. And then we sort of get into this sort of early of the last century into 1948, you know, the creation of the state of Israel. And it, it just sends this strain of thought into hyperdrive. You know, the, in our day, the state of Israel has been reestablished. And I mean, I think me and you probably take a slightly different viewpoint in terms of 
um, the the behaviour of the state of Israel. But putting that to one side, there's nothing that I've read in the Bible that leads me as a Christian to think I've got to support the political modern day state of Israel right. link, linked to the state of Israel that we read about in the Old Testament. And you, you picked out a major uh, uh, thing that I obviously passed over in terms of the popularity, popularization of dispensationalism. Definitely 1948 was a critical factor um, because Darby had prophesied back in 1829 the uh, um, restoration of the state of Israel. Uh, now, um, it, what, what we have to see, and here we go into Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, is where Paul is despairing over the rejection of the Jewish people, um, their rejection of the Messiah. Uh, and he, in chapter 11, and he, uh, he unlocks this intriguing possibility that even as, you know, he, he talks about the faithful remnant in the Old Testament, and he talks about us as the church being grafted into the faithful remnant. That's why God can't possibly have two covenant peoples, one Jew and one Gentile, because we have been grafted into that there's only one covenant people. And Paul clearly, clearly teaches in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and in the book of Galatians, that we have been grafted into it, that we actually, the present Jerusalem is a place of spiritual slavery, and that we as the church are the Israel of God in Galatians 6, and we are the Jerusalem of God in, in Galatians 4. So those things are so clear. Um, I just don't get how people can miss them. But uh, however, Paul unfolds this intriguing possibility that before the return of the Lord, there will be an ingathering of the Jewish people. So I, but, but they will be ingathered to the Messiah, Christ. They will come to the Messiah the same way you and I came to Christ, not through the law, not through a reestablished temple or anything like that, but by uh, grace, through faith. And so, um, and so on, on the same basis that we do. And so uh, at the extreme end of dispensationalism, people say that you, Jewish people can be saved through the law. They don't even have to come through Christ. And so um, that is a total denial, obviously, of the New Testament and of, of Romans and Galatians and the rest of the New Testament, as far as that goes. But so we have to make a distinction between the Jewish people and the state of Israel. Obviously, the state of Israel is composed of Jewish people. It's also composed of a substantial number, substantial number of non-Jewish people. But Paul is not talking about that. He's talking about those who are ethnically Jewish and a time of revival before the Lord returns. Um, so God, and in that context, he said, God hasn't forgotten his covenant, right? Um, actually, Abraham is my father. Abra I, I, I am the heir of Abraham, Romans 4. He is the father of faith. But the Jewish people are the natural tree into which I've been grafted. And so Paul's saying, please don't forget that, you Gentiles. You wouldn't have a savior if, it, if Israel hadn't existed, if the Jewish people hadn't existed. But the, the Jewish, but, but that's got nothing whatsoever to do with the state of Israel. I don't believe the restoration of the state of Israel is prophesied in Scripture at all. All the prophecies of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, uh, and only in Jesus Christ, and through Jesus Christ and his work. Otherwise, I'm not sure what salvation is all about or why Christ came. And so... You can be sympathetic to the state of Israel um, because you might view it as having a superior human rights record 
uh, as being willing to negotiate uh, as uh, according to agreements that have been released as recently as today with the United Arab Emirates. That's dating this podcast, but it proves to me that there's some good in the state of Israel, and I think it's it's personally my political view is that it's worth being a friend. It's, it's, it's a good thing to be a friend of Israel, and there are good reasons for that, but they are not theological reasons. They are political, humanitarian, whatever you want to call it, reasons that you and I can argue over, and I'll just see if I can prove that you're wrong, which you are. So there you go. But we shouldn't have any theological. Uh, we don't support Israel for theological reasons. But we should have a concern for the Jewish people. We certainly should uh, for biblical reasons. But you can't confuse the state of Israel with the Jewish people. And Orthodox Jews will tell you the same thing. They're not Zionists. There's a lot of them in Israel, but there's a lot of them in places like Newcastle and other cities around the world, Toronto, New York, you know, Chicago, you name it, they're there. They're not advocates of the state of Israel. They're orthodox, law-abiding Jewish people still looking for a Messiah. Now, I don't remember an instance of you proving me wrong before, but obviously I'm open to you know that happening for the first time. But you, you just don't realize <laughs> it happened. But it's like the rapture. It's you know it'll happen and people won't realize it. You just didn't realize it. So we, we've we've talked an awful lot about the misconceptions, and I mean, it's just it's out of more than any other book in the Bible. It just attracts misconception and uh, all that sort of stuff. But it would also be good to touch on at least briefly the, the other side of it. And you know, whenever I've read Revelation, the thing that strikes me more than anything is just the lordship of Jesus. You know, his sovereignty. You know, breaking the scroll. The 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 throne room it's to me it's just all about his his majesty you know and um in your book i've i've got written down here that you know you say there's three major pastoral and theological messages for us as believers now the way of the cross is the path to eternal victory which we've we've touched on a little bit that god is sovereign over human history and that history began in eden in the garden temple and it will end in the Garden Temple of the New Jerusalem. Now, if we could focus on those things when we read Revelation in a coronavirus uh, era, Revelation could be such a comfort and an encouragement to us, couldn't it, about the Lordship of Jesus and about his His sovereignty over, over history? Yeah, and so that's why I think um, that this should be a time that Christians are excited and encouraged. This pastor, um, uh, my pastor friend from Chicago, said to me today, I'm encouraged in this coronavirus. Obviously, there's a lot of things, there, there's difficulties that are associated with it that many of us are being impacted by. But the reason he says he's excited or encouraged is because he believes that God is at work. And, you know, that's the whole point of the various judgments of Revelation. It's teaching people, well, you know, you can trust in your medicine and technology, but the time will come when they won't save you. So I'm going to shake you up a little bit in hopes that you'll realize that you need to put your trust in me instead. And if we go through this and we get spiritual revival out the other end of it, I think as Christians, uh, most of us will stop complaining about the fact we had to wear a mask somewhere, we couldn't travel or whatever else legitimately that we had to go through, um, because what comes out the other end of it will be worth it. But in the midst of it, we have the assurance that God is sovereign. And as a pastor, I always 
held on to that in my own life, tried to encourage other people to hold on to it. When you're going through the shadow of the valley and things look absolutely awful, God is still on the throne. You know, God is not up there popping valiums, wondering, you know, what he's going to do to keep this world under control. God is on the throne. And uh, he is described as the Alpha and the Omega, uh, which means the beginning and the end. That means he's the Lord of the beginning, the Lord of the end, and the Lord of everything in between. And so uh, he's doing two things. He's, he's uh, shaking this, the false security of an unbelieving world, and he's also addressing a complacent church. Come back to your first love. That's what he's doing right now. And every time he's sent, you know, these plague-like events. I mean, I think 2008, the financial crash was one, um, was one of them. Uh, and, uh, you know, you think of um, world wars, uh, you think of the Great Depression, you think of all sorts of different things. Uh, God is getting a, a fallen world's attention. And so good can come out of all these things. But the sovereignty of God is what, you know, we hang on to it because it teaches us that God's hanging on to us. And that's really what we need to know. And it's one of the main, main messages of Revelation. So even when things get dicey in the world, it's not a time to, you know, the media are feeding us enough fear. What's worse is dispensational people who are going around talking about uh, don't take a vaccine because Bill Gates has put a microchip in it, uh, which is, is ludicrous from every point of view but it plays to people's fear. Well, Christians, the last time I read the Bible, it says fear not 365 times. That's one for every day of the year. Christians are not supposed to be a people who are dominated by fear, but dispensationalism teaches people to be scared, and that's what it leaves them with. Well, we shouldn't be. We, in the natural, yes, we're all concerned and fearful in our human nature. But as Christians, that's where we get our confidence that God is with us, that he hasn't left us. Well, I think that's a, a great a great point for us to start to draw, draw to a close on eschatology. It's a massive subject. We could go on for parts two and three and four and five if we wanted. Now, I'm sure some people listening to this may well have been brought up in in strands of the church that embrace this. And, you know, this is this is difficult to hear potentially, but this this is an encouragement for us to to to, to re-engage with these subjects look again read your bible again look at look again at, at what we're, we're talking about here uh, this is all coming out of david's new book no diving avoiding the shallow end of your faith and going deeper into the bible so that has a whole chapter on eschatology you've also written extensively from revelation uh, you wrote uh, revelation a shorter commentary with gk beale who's a bit of a legend and you also wrote mystery explained a simple guide to revelation so lots of material out there for people to get stuck into as we said at the start we've got more uh, episodes coming up on faith worship healing money prophecy lots of other really interesting topics so hit subscribe and we look forward to speaking to you again soon 